Zuchus opportunity. We have the incredible Zuchus and opportunity today to have a guest speaker, Mr. Gibber, who joins us today. We uh, welcome him here. So besides, besides for having the distinct, the distinct honor of being Charles the Wall Gibber's father, which is, that alone is a very prestigious honor and accolade by its very own right, Mr. Gibber is a Jew that is always very, very inspiring to myself and to his community, to his colleagues, to the Rebbeim, and to everybody around him. Somebody that's constantly looking for more in his Avodah Hashem. How he could be more connected to Hashem, how he could have a greater connection to Torah and to mitzvos. And the reason we invited him here today is to show us a beautiful life, a different perspective, a different outlook on life, that Amir Tashem could be very inspirational, and he really serves as a great role model for each and every one of us. B'kavod. The last time I stood in front of a group of high school guys holding a piece of paper like this, laminated with a lot of things on both sides, was one of my 16 seasons coaching varsity basketball at MTA. So it brings back a lot of great memories. And in fact, I was just speaking with one of your Abayim just now, um, former JEC uh, varsity basketball player, right? And he reminded me of one of our greatest wins in all those years, right? An 18-point comeback in the fourth quarter against JC. We had no business winning that game. I want to, first of all, thank uh, very much uh, Rabbi Yablok. I see Rabbi Yablok's here. It's a big covet for me that Rabbi Yablok's here. Uh, I really especially want to thank, first of all, all the Rabbeim who are here in the room today. Um, and I want to give a, a special thank you to Rabbi Honig for inviting me. Uh, I really appreciate it. I want to tell you guys something. Over my many years, not only as a student, but uh, around high schools, again, I coached varsity basketball for 16 years, spent a lot of time in a lot of schools in the area. Uh, I hope you guys realize just how lucky you are to have such an incredible array of rabbeim like you do here. Uh, Rabbi Honig in particular, who I know Charles has the schuss to be in his, his shear. I'm amazed by the conversations we have. You know, it's amazing when a Rebbe can not only uh, be a Tamachachim and Gemara and learning, but can really spend his every waking moment, and I speak for all the Rabbi in the room here, uh, trying to think of ways to inspire their Talmidim and to show the, the Talmidim the beauty, the beauty of Yiddishkeit, both in and outside the Gemara, is something uh, incredibly inspiring to me. So thank you for having me. You guys are in high school. I know you take uh, history. You learn a lot about the world. You learn a lot about all the world wars, World War I. World War II. I'm here today to speak about a different war, a different world war, maybe the greatest war that we'll all fight in our, in our lives, and the greatest journey. It's the battle of life itself. And let me start with a, a mushal, a great Chabad mushal. It's a story of the lost niggin, the lost niggin, the lost tune, the lost song. This is a mushal told by Rav Hillel Paracher. He's one of the oldest Chabad Hasidim many, many years ago. And he tells the following story that I heard from my Rebbe, of Moshe Weinberger, and it had an unbelievable impact on me. I've told this story numerous times, and I can't tell you how many times in my life I'm encountering things in the business world or as I travel, and I just keep thinking this, this, the story of the lost niggin just keeps coming back to me. 
The story takes place in a European shtetl, a European town a few hundred years ago. A Jew, a simple Yid, who was going through life, very poor, a lot of worries, a lot of daigas, a lot of tsaras, a lot of things on his mind. And one day, he hears somebody playing this unbelievable niggin, this unbelievable tune. Now, can you guys ever imagine your lives? I mean, I know you guys walk around with those... uh, you know, the, the Beats and the, uh, the, uh, what, the, the AirPods and right, all the different things we got going on. And sometimes you guys listen to a tune, you listen to a song, and you try to lose yourself in that song. You try to lose yourself. And so this Yid was hearing this unbelievable niggin, and for those three, four minutes that this song was playing, he was so inspired, his neshama was so uplifted by this niggin, he literally forgot all his worries in the world. For those four or five minutes, it's like he left the world, and his neshama was just carried on such a high. The next day comes, and this is a few hundred years ago, so we don't have all the, uh, the fancy electronics and recording devices and different things we have today. And this Jew had this incredible yearning, this incredible desire to hear that niggin again. But the person who played it for him wasn't around. So he's trying to think in his mind, I, I think I remember it, he's trying to, trying to re-sing it, he can't quite remember it. And every day he stays, he's trying to rediscover that, that niggin. But he can't do it. He becomes so obsessed that he starts going around all over the town to different Bali Nagina, different professional singers. And he describes to them this amazing song, this amazing niggin he heard. Can you possibly, do you know what that song is? Maybe you can play it for me. And each time he goes to a different professional singer, they play him a song. He says, nah, that's not quite it. And this becomes an obsession for him. He eventually starts traveling from town to town, traveling far and wide all over, in a desperate search to rediscover that lost niggin. Every now and then, he hears somebody play maybe a chord, maybe a note that sounds familiar, and for a second he thinks that might be the niggin, but then he realizes that's just not it. And his Shama's craving that lost niggin. And his entire life, he spends the rest of his life in search of that lost niggin. What is this story all about? There's a famous medrash, perhaps some of you have, have learned it, we, we all hear it in grade school when we're young, that when we're in our, in our mother's womb, a malach comes and teaches us kola Torah kula, right? We learn all of Torah, you've all heard that, right? Famous story. And right before we're born, the malach gives us a little tap and we forget that song. And then what happens? Our neshama then descends into a goof, into a physical body, and we descend into the world. The thing is, though, our neshama always knows, I once heard this unbelievable niggin. And for those few moments when I heard that niggin, I had tremendous simcha, and all I want to do is rediscover that niggin. But here we are in this physical world, and our body carries our neshama through the world, and here's the story of our lives, guys. This is the battle of our lives, the journey of our lives. We spend a lifetime, whether we know it or not, whether it's conscious or subconscious, all we're trying to do in this world is, to, is discover that lost niggin. And let me tell you what we do. We run around from one Balmanagin to another. We want to run around from one professional singer to another in a desperate search for that lost niggin. But who are these Bali Nagina that we run to? Could be the Yankees. Could be the Mets. Could be the latest iPhone, the latest vacation, the latest flat screen TV. I got Charles in the room. I have a long list. So we run around in search of that lost niggin. Right? And every now and then... Maybe we, we, we accomplish something or we experience something 
that brings us a moment of momentary joy, and our neshama says, "Ooh, that that might be that might be a chord, that might be a note." That's not, but ultimately, that's that's not the nigan. That's not really what it's all about. So let me tell you a little bit, just a little bit, because time's limited, about my own journey, my own search for the lost nigan. I don't think it's all that unique. I think my journey is probably um, something that a lot of people experience, certainly in our world, certainly in the world of those who leave yeshiva someday and go out into the workforce and go out into the business world and travel the world. And we have, we have experiences in the world as we search for that lost niggin. So I'll just tell you a little bit. I grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I had two grandfathers in their own ways. There's not enough time to delve into it, believe me, I would. In their own ways who are literally gedolim in, in Torah and learning and Yiddishkeit. Uh, my one grandfather, who, who Charles was named after, was born in 1900, Holocaust survivor, lost children, lost parents, lost siblings, lost everything in the war. But till his dying day at the age of 101, woke up at 4 o'clock every morning to learn. His goal every day was eight hours learning Eight hours working, he had a big real estate business. Eight hours at home with his family and sleeping. That's how he lived his life. So this is where I came from. I went to Yeshiva Day School, just like everyone in this room, or I, I assume everyone in this room. I went to Yeshiva High School. Um, back, in, back in the day, I didn't have the schuss to come to this school. It was just starting out, but uh, I actually went to MTA. But very similar background to you guys. I went to Shalvim. I went to YU. I lived in a little bit of a, I don't know if you'd call it a little bit of a sheltered life growing up, right? We're, we're kind of a little sheltered. And then I went out into the world. And I went to the business world for the last 23, 20, 24, 25 years. I'm working in the business world. I oversee all of our salespeople across the country, working in a family business, oversee hundreds if not thousands of salespeople, travel all the time, have a lot of experiences. Let me tell you guys something. There's going to come a day, God willing, where you guys will walk out into the world. And the world is a big ocean when you leave the walls of the yeshiva. And imagine yourself sitting on a little paddle boat deep in the middle of the ocean somewhere. If you don't have a clear understanding of where you're trying to go, and you're not rowing very, very hard in that direction, that ocean pulls you in a lot of directions. And unless you're working hard with a real sense of of purpose... It's very easy to drift, and it's very easy to drift away from the real tachlis of life, what's really important in life. I'm sure I'm not the first guest speaker. I'm sure there are other fathers who come in, professionals, alumni, who speak about the finance world, the, the law world, all these different things. But I can tell you one thing. When you walk out into that world, it's very easy to drift. It's very easy to drift in Ruchlius, and that's what happened to me. Now, thank God, Baruch Hashem, always Shomer Shabbos. Always, you know, raising a from family. But if I'm going to be honest, I'm going to tell you the following. I never thought it would happen to me, but I went many years without opening up a safer. Many years without learning in a serious way. Many years where maybe my only attempts to learn was an occasional working with my kids to study for a test or whatnot. But I drifted, and I drifted pretty far. And let me tell you something, guys. I coach basketball, as I said earlier. You guys, a lot of you are into sports, Right. One of my uh, favorite activities these days are coming to TABC hockey games. For many years, it was MTA basketball. That was pretty much where I got my, uh, got my thrills. 16 seasons, Saracek tournaments, undefeated season, championships. You know what it all amounted to? Emptiness. Emptiness. Now, by the way, 
not knocking it. It's great. I'm a big sports guy to this day. There's a lot of great value in sports, especially if you play the right way and if you play with uh, the right midos and you play as a team. There's a lot to be gained from it. But as far as what is really important in life and what brings happiness, I'll never forget the moment standing in the Max Stern Athletic Center in YU in front of 2,500 fans, completing an undefeated championship season. You know what it was? It was a fleeting moment of happiness. Great accomplishment. Really exciting to be a part of some, the lives of some younger players, be a role model. There's a lot to be said for it. But at the end of the day, that's not what life's all about. That's not what brings great, great satisfaction and great happiness. I have a uh, colleague. His name is Mark Eden. He's the president of one of our sales brokers down in Maryland, oversees a lot of our salespeople. And I have, a, I have an opportunity from time to time to travel with him. He happens to be Jewish, pretty far from, uh, from Yiddishkeit. Probably doesn't have much of an understanding of what it means to be a Jew, but he's a Jew, and he knows that I'm a from Jew, and uh, I think he admires me for it. And from time to time as we travel, he's a, very, he's a deep, deep thinker, philosophical person. And we get into these long conversations. He likes to try to pick my brain about what it is to be an Orthodox Jew. What does that really mean? And he, he likes to tell me about this book he read that made a major impact on his life. The book is called The Tipping Point. And what the book describes is a handful of moments, maybe three, four moments in a person's life where you can look back, and we could all do this as you get older, you look back and you say, well, these are the three or four pivotal moments in my life that got me to where I am today. I reached this fork in the road, whether it's professionally, whether it's who we marry, what we do in life. I could have gone this way, I could have gone that way, but because I went that way, my life turned out the way it turned out, right? Pivotal moments in our lives. And I like to think back on this journey that I've, I, I feel like I'm, I'm still in the early stages of being on this journey, and I'm sure we will all, if we're not already at some point in our lives, be on a similar journey. And I like to think back at these, these tipping points in my life that had a big impact on me. So here I was out in the workforce, drifting, right? Hadn't opened up a safe for many years, really not connected as deeply to Yiddishkeit as I should be, moving in a lot of directions in that deep ocean. And something very interesting started, started happening to me about five or six years ago. Time won't allow me to get into too many details, but I'll just say that I had a feeling of, of just emptiness. A lot of amazing things to be, to be happy for in life, beautiful children, great family, a business, a lot of other things. But there was something missing. And it didn't matter when the Giants were winning Super Bowls. I mean, today if you're a Giant fan, it's easy to feel empty. But, you know, um, it was, it was, it's hard to explain. But your neshama knows when, like, you're filling it with calories, but they're empty calories, right? And you just don't feel a sense of simcha and a sense of happiness. So Hashem started speaking to me. Now, looking back on it, I think Hashem was probably always speaking to me. And I think Hashem speaks to all of us all the time. But many of us are not fortunate enough to open our ears and open our eyes and listen and really understand when Hashem is talking to us. And there was a lot of things happening in those, at that time in my life. Thank God, nothing terrible. But a lot of, you know, I'll give you one example. We all like to think we have a lot of talents. We have a lot of abilities. We're all very good at what we, what we try to be good at, whether it's sports or school or learning, whatever it is. Same thing in the work world. We had a business that was, for many years, very successful. And around that time of 2008, 2009, you guys might be a little too young, but in this country at that time, uh, a lot of things happened in the, in the business world that changed a lot of lives. 
some major, major companies out there, Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, all these. These were, you know, you think of Migdal Bavel. These were the modern-day, whatever the plural is, Mig, Migdale, I don't know. These are the Migdal Bavels of today. Companies that have been around for 100 years, 200, here today, boom, gone tomorrow. We had something going on with our business. Literally overnight, no matter how good we thought we were, no matter how much we built up a business, overnight on the brink of collapse. Uh, hours, from, hours from literally going bankrupt. I didn't know at one point in time, and thank God my kids are too young to even know this, it was so bad at one point, I didn't know if we'd have a house to live in. And there were others in our industry who suffered the same fates. Uh, one of our competitors, multi-billion dollar company, all full of Harvard MBAs, boom, gone. We're just about gone. And it really shook me up a lot. You know, at the end of the day, Hashem runs everything. That's just the bottom line. So there were a lot of things going on in my life at that time that really had me shaken up. And it was around the same time I was really drifting in Rufnius. And numerous things started happening within a period of six or eight months of my life that were like impossible to be coincidences. And I was fortunate that I recognized this is Hashem giving me a wake-up call. And this is Hashem saying... It's time to get a little more serious about Yiddishkeit. I'll just give you uh, one or two small examples. I remember on a Friday night, I remember this very, very clearly, um, a friend of mine in the neighborhood was making a seum at his house. I didn't learn with them, but I figured, why not? I'll go to the seum. Sounds like a nice thing to do. And I went, and Roy Przanski from Mene Shurn was there, and he had no idea that I was going through all these different issues in my mind. And he said something that night that literally shook me to my core. There were about 40, 50 guys in the room. And he quoted a Gemara. I don't remember where it was. But if you come to me afterwards, I'll find out. And he said to me that when Hashem, he said to the group, when Hashem is trying to send you a message, first he starts with this. Then if you don't listen, he moves to your mamon, your money. And then if you don't listen, he moves to your health. And it just like keeps elevating. And I started saying to myself, wait a second, this happened to me, that happened to me, now this is happening to me, you mean, you mean, God forbid, my health is next? Totally shook me up. Something else happened at that time. I travel on business all the time, I'm in airports every week. During that time, I would travel and I, I, I was constantly, every time I was in an airport, I'd see the Barnes and Nobles or the bookstore in the airport, and this one book, for like six months, I would just see this book everywhere I go. And I never picked it up. I never touched it. It seemed like some near-death experience book. The author wasn't Jewish. I didn't, I didn't read it. But everywhere I looked, I saw this book. The book is called Proof of Heaven by Dr. Eben Alexander. I would strongly recommend it. Let me tell you what happened. I come into shul one week. Again, all during that same time. And again, Ray Przanski has no idea what's going on here. Ray Przanski gets up on Shabbos and says something that I, I literally almost collapsed. He said that somebody in the shul had just given him this book, Doctor, uh, Proof of Heaven, and he said he read it, and he had to share something from this book. And, okay, my antenna is now, you know, up. It's an amazing story. I'll give you a quick 30-second synopsis of the story. Dr. Eben Alexander, top, top in his field, neurosurgeon in his 40s, very healthy, never, you know, unbelievable brain surgeon. One day wakes up in his mansion. He's not feeling well. He'd been perfectly healthy. Within a few hours, he was in a deep, deep coma. They rushed him to the emergency room. The doctors told his family he has little to no chance to survive. 
They told him if he does survive, by some miracle, he's going to be a vegetable. He'll never be able to function as a human being again. Fast forward a week, week and a half later, this doctor woke up from his coma. He was perfectly healthy. The doctors were totally astounded. Two, three months later, he was back performing brain surgeries as if nothing ever happened. He claims, and he went in this book in great, great detail. Now, I'll tell you what got me about this story. He claims that he remembers everything that happened to him that week when he was in that coma. He went to this other world. He saw this great light. He saw these angels. He even discovered there was a picture there of a young girl who he never knew he had a sister. Later found out that was his sister. A whole story. But that's not what got me. Because anybody can make up a story. What got me was, right, Przansky goes on to describe in great detail the story. And he said there's a Gemara, I believe in Sanhedrin, if I'm not mistaken, that describes in detail what happens when a person leaves this world. And apparently it also describes what happens when a non-Jew leaves this world. And according to Ray Przansky, that doctor's story in the book matched exactly, detail for detail, what was in the Gemara. And how long ago was the Gemara written, right? 1,500 years ago, a little more? That blew my mind. That very day, I found somebody, one of my next-door neighbors had the book at home. I think by Sunday I had finished the book. This was Hashem talking to me. This was me opening my eyes and understanding the Baal Habira, the master of the world, is trying to send me a message. The search for the lost Nigan was now intensifying. January or August of 2012, I had this close to go to the Siam Ashas. Now, when you're on this journey, again, it's not, my journey is not unique, but when we're on the journey of life trying to find the lost Nigan, there are many people who play roles along those journey, that, that journey. Hashem sends many people our way to play a part in the story. My father, who's an unbelievable, Charles' grandfather, unbelievable leader in the Jewish community, Baal Tzedakah, Baal Chesed, unbelievable, was not at the time somebody who learned much himself, but he loved to go to the Siam Shas. And I went with him to the Siam Shas. And guys, if you haven't heard this, I would strongly recommend, because I know you're on YouTube all the time anyway, so I think I could, it's all right to tell him to go on YouTube. Um, Rabbi Franz said something at the last Siam Shas that if there's one line that changed my life, it's something Rabbi Franz said. Now, it did help that I think his speech was one of the only ones in English, so I actually understood that speech. But Rabbi Franz said the following, and I'll give you one second, but you've got to watch it. It's a 22-minute, it's on YouTube. Rabbi Franz, Siam Shas, 2012. Said Rabbi Franz, there are certain things in life that we attach great importance to. Building a business, you need a business plan. You build a house, you need blueprints. When something's important, you need a plan. When something's not important, I'm going to go uh, to uh, Chickie's during lunch. I don't need a plan for that. I just go, right? So my friend said that the Gemara says that everybody has a baskol, a voice in the back of our minds every day that are asking us, I don't know if I'm quoting this exactly right, but asking us, what are we doing to have a relationship with our Kaddish Baruch Hu? And no matter what we do, we can't get rid of this. Deep in, our, deep in the back of our mind, it's always pulling at us. And I said to myself, yeah, that's a great question. That's exactly what I'm trying to figure out in my life. Said Rabbi Fran, for this we need a plan. And he said, I have a, and he said this a lot more dramatic than I can. He said, tomorrow morning, 90,000 people in this stadium, daf yomi. And if you can't learn daf yomi, amud yomi. You can't learn amud yomi, mishnah brewer yomi. You can't learn mishnah brewer yomi, mishnah yomi. He kept like lowering the bar until the point where there was just no way to ignore it. And he screamed out something that literally shook me. And my friend, I, I think MetLife Stadium literally shook when he said this. And my friend screamed out, but something a day, something a day. I remember saying to myself, I do nothing a day, 
and I want to understand why I don't have a better connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The next day I started learning brachos. I had done that many times, never got past like Daf Yud. But this time was a little different. I made it through brachos on my own, made us see him, got all excited. Masecha Shabbos came along, my oldest son, Bar Mitzvah, get pulled in a lot of directions. One day I wake up, I said, oh my gosh, 10 days went by, I didn't learn Daf Yomi. And by the way, Daf Yomi doesn't wait for anybody. So I remember the next, uh, that spring, I go over to my uncle. I have an uncle who's a massive Talmud Chacham, huge lawyer in Baltimore, Magid Shir of Daf Yomi for years. I go over to my uncle, and by the way, see, it's how funny how Hashem works. If I wanted to quit Daf Yomi, which I thought I wanted to, and I wanted to tell someone, why would I go tell the one person in my extended family who's the biggest Talmud Chacham, who learns the most, that's probably the last person I'd want to tell, right? Because I probably really didn't want to quit Daf Yomi. I said to my uncle, I'm done. I can't do this. And he sat me down. He says, you're not done. You made a commitment. You're doing it wrong. He says, you need to go to a shear. You need to find a shear. And every day, like a business meeting, you're at that shear. So I'm a big talker. And I'll be honest, I probably hadn't been to Minyan during the week in many years. Shabbos, yes. I said, I'm going to find the earliest Daf Yomi in all of Tinek. 5.30, B'nai Ashur. And for two weeks, I'm a big talker. I'm going to the shear. Um, my wife says to me one day, you know something? For two weeks, all I'm hearing about is this 5.30 shear. But the problem is you haven't gone once. And I really don't care if you don't want to go. But if you don't go tomorrow, I don't want to ever hear about it again. So Charles and Zachary will report to their mom that she saved me. And I said, wow, that's, that's a pretty big challenge. i got to go to Daf Yomi 5.30 tomorrow morning. One thing led to another. Now I'm there at uh, Morning Minion every day after, uh, after Daf Yomi. And I start seeing guys my age. Guys my age who I know. I know they don't come to shul. They barely come to shul on Shabbos. But you know what? Unfortunately, they're saying Kaddish. And I start seeing these guys in shul in the morning. It's amazing, by the way. Unbelievable thing. Discussion for another day. How people can be so disconnected from Yiddishkeit. And God forbid they have to say Kaddish. They can change their whole lives to be there. And so I said, what? Well, I have to wait, God forbid, one day until I say Kaddish. Start going to Mincha every day. Start going to Marav one day every day. One thing leads to another. And then something, uh, something really interesting happens. I got 12 minutes. I need about two more hours. Something, something else interesting happens. I walk into the uh, Judaica house on Cedar Lane, and I see the Ramchal's Derech Hashem. I'm like, oh, I, I remember 30 years ago in Yeshiva, I tried. Let me, let me see. I take out Derech Hashem, boom, changed my life again. Unbelievable. And in doing all this, as you keep growing, guys, here's the deal. You come to a point, you start to understand something, that when your eyes are closed and your ears are closed, you don't realize you want to have happiness in life, and it's great to win championships, and it's great to go to the games, and it's great to do all these different things. But let me tell you one thing right now, and someday maybe you'll think back and agree, I hope. There's only one way, only, only one way to happiness. There's no other way. Yismach lev mevak Hashem. That's it. That's it. Yismach lev mevak Hashem. What that means is that a person who's a seeker, a person who's searching for Hashem, that's the, that's the only way for the heart to be happy. Yismach le mevak Hashem. And as this journey progressed, that's what I started realizing. Let me tell you for a minute or two about the Ramchal. Derech Hashem the Ramchal. I'm a big Ramchal guy. I highly recommend, your Bey know better than me, if it's appropriate for you or not, but the Swarm of the Ramchal, life changer. Life changer. You want to know, what, you want to know about the Ramchal? The Vilna Gon said three things about the Ramchal. And my boys know, every year we go to Israel, my one goal when we go to Israel every year is to go to the Kever of the Ramchal. If I make it to the Kever of the Ramchal, great trip. If I don't, Chaval, too bad. i got to get back there. The Vilna Gon said the following. The Vilna Gon first saw the Mesil Sesharm. 
the magnum opus of the Ramchal, just after Ramchal passed away in the 1700s. The Vilna Gon said if the Ramchal had still been alive when he saw the, the Mesil Sasharim, he would have walked on foot across Europe to learn at the feet of the Ramchal. The Vilna Gon said there's not one wasted word in the entire Mesil Sasharim. Every word has deep, deep secrets that the Ramchal was given Rashus to reveal in the world. This is mind-blowing. The Vilna Gon said that the Ramchal had as deep and as profound an understanding of Yiddishkeit as any Jew who ever lived. That's pretty, that's pretty serious. And how does the Ramchal open Mesil Sasharim? I think you guys have it here. How does the Ramchal open Mesil Sasharim? He starts with the ultimate question of life that we have to ask ourselves. He says... The foundation of all of life, the foundation of, of seeking out Hashem, is when we ask ourselves, this is the key, ma chovaso ba'olamo. What is our obligation in the world? Why are we in this world? Why did Hashem create me in this world? And that's something that probably a lot of us don't spend a lot of time thinking about. The Ramchal is another amazing mashal. Listen to this one, guys. Says the Ramchal, what is this world? This world is like a dark room. Okay, imagine being in a pitch black room. One of two things happens. Either we can't see anything, although there are objects in the room, or we see a couch or a pillar that we think is a person. We see a person that we think is a couch. Total confusion, because that's what happens in this physical world. So let me ask you guys, as I, as I wind down here a little bit, let me ask you guys, uh, let, let's bring this down to a practical level. How can we engage in this great war that I referred to earlier? which is the war that the, the Ramchal reveals to us that life is a battle of our guf versus our neshama. That's the battle of life. Our neshama, our guf, seeks, speaks, seeks physical pleasures. That's it. Great food, great taivas, uh, great temptations, things we shouldn't look at, etc. Our neshama, though, is in search of that lost niggin. And no matter how much money we make, no matter how many cars, how many big houses... The neshama, it's a big zero. It's a big zero, okay? But it's only when we're able to bring Hashem into our lives and to use the physical things in the world to reach Hashem, that's when it has meaning. Heard something amazing yesterday from Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg of Boca Raton. Imagine having all the cars, having all the mansions, having all the money, having all the gashmias, but your neshama knows that's just one zero next to another, right? Imagine all these long line of zeros. But now if we take echad, we take Echad, and we bring Hashem into our lives, and we take all this gashers we have as a way to get towards Hashem, get closer to Hashem, put a one in front of all those zeros. Now what do you have? You have a pretty big number, right? So let me ask you a question. How do we go about this? How do we, how do we try to feed our neshama to reach true happiness? I want to make two suggestions here in the last few minutes. Number one, I think we can actually see it in the Torah, Okay? I have a challenge for you guys. I have a challenge for you guys. I think a lot of guys, adults included, learn Torah, look at Torah, sit and shear, whatever it is. The problem is, we look at these stories, we're in the stories of the Avos right now, the Parsha of the Avos, we look at these as stories from thousands of years ago that have no impact on our lives, right? But the Torah is not a history book. The Torah, every story in the Torah is speaking to us. Okay, it's, it's, it's speaking to us. Let me give you one example, and I was going to look inside, but we're a little short on time. If you look in this week's Parsha, coming up right now, where Yitzhak gives the bracha to, uh, to, to uh, Yaakov and to Esav. The Siva Shalom. 
asks two very interesting questions. If you look at the brachas he gives, you should get from the fat of the land, you should get food, you should get this, all physical, gashmias things. If you're giving a bracha to Yaakov, shouldn't it be like, you should have nachas from your kids, you should learn well, you should do... Why all these physical things? You'll also notice the difference between the bracha given to Yaakov and to Esav. One difference, same bracha. The bracha given to Yaakov has the word Elohim in front of it. That Hashem should give you and all these physical things. Says the Neshiva Shalom something very interesting, guys. Listen carefully. Judaism does not frown on the physical world. Unlike other religions, Judaism does not frown on physical things. What Judaism says is, you have to bring Elokis into it. You have to bring godliness into it. Okay? You look at everything in your life as a tool, as a vessel that Hashem's giving you to appreciate Hashem more, to get closer to Hashem. And there's many ways to do that. I'll give you one last example of trying to take the Torah and applying it to our lives, and I love this one. You ready? It says in the beginning of last week's parsha, "Vayu yimei chayei sara mea shana esrim shana v'shevashenim shnei chayei sara." Right? These are the lives of Sarah. Says the Kedushas Levi, the Bardichever, an amazing thing. And by the way, that's the amazing thing about Torah. I think, and I'm just I'm a no, I'm a rookie. I think I don't know. Maybe the Rabbeim will disagree. There's so many levels to Torah. You take a pasuk in Torah. And it has the Pashup Shad as the meaning, but with all the Rishonim and Mepharshim, there's so many layers of like hidden messages in these words. My challenge to you is each week look at the Parsha look, and try to figure out what's the message for me. So here's what the Bardichever says about that Pasuk. He says that Sarai was not created with what we call the Mazel. It's not luck, but the, the way Hashem set up the world for Sarai, she was not destined to have children. And she cried, and she dobbed, and then she wanted children desperately. There was an element of Misa in her life, because she couldn't have children. And through all this, through her tefillos and her mice and tovim, Hashem created Sarah. Sarah did have the mazel to have children. Okay? And says the Bardichever, yeah, the Pasuk says, Shnei Chaye Sarah, these, this is the light, these are the years of Sarah. Bardichever says, yeah, Shnei Chaye Sarah. Shnei also means two. These are the two lives of Sarah. The first life is Sarai, no children, she daven, maizotot. It led to the creation of another life, of Sarah, where she did have children. So you know what message I think we can take from that? Just one example. We could have situations in our lives that seem hopeless. We're frustrated. Look at the koch of tefillah. That's the message that I'm getting from that particular pasuk. I need to, uh, to wrap up, but let me just tell you, let me tell you two last things, and then we'll wrap up here. I want to tell you about a deck of cards. A deck of cards. 52. They still 52 cards in a deck? I think so. 52 cards. You know if you take 52 cards and you randomly throw them on the floor and they land in a certain sequence, do you know what the probability is? And I don't know if you guys are learned this in math yet about probabilities. You know what the probability of recreating that exact sequence of 52 cards on our own? You know what the probability is? It's well into the trillions. Meaning, it's essentially impossible... To recreate the same... If I re-throw those cards on the floor and try to get it in the same order, it's impossible. Okay? Hold that thought for one minute. Let's talk for one second about the human eyeball. Okay? Human eyeball. Ready? Just a couple things. Ready? The human eye contains more than 2 million operational parts that process 35,000 bits of information every hour. The human eyeball. Okay? The retina in the eyeball sees everything upside down. But when the brain automatically turns it right side up so we can, we can process it. 
you know that there are more than one million nerve fibers in the brain? The retina in our eye uses 120 million rods and 7 million cones in each eye. On average, the human eye can tell the difference between 10 million different colors, the human eye. So let me ask you a question. If we can't recreate the sequence of 52 cards, can you imagine recreating a human eyeball? It's impossible. In how many million, how many thousands of years has the medical world been at it and yet we still can't create the human eye? You mean to tell me the world is an accident? There's no creator of the world? There's nobody running the world? Unbelievable. Let me end with one last story. Two more minutes. One more minute. One last story, guys. From Moshe Weinberger. And here's the story. It's a mushal as well. The mushal goes as follows. Word was spread to the military base that in two weeks' time, the Russian czar, the evil, anti-Semitic Russian czar, was going to inspect the military base. For two weeks, the soldiers are petrified. They're doing all their achanos. They're preparing. The day comes... The soldiers get so nervous, so under pressure, they go drinking, they all get drunk. The czar's coming up the road with his assistant. They're shocked to see thousands of soldiers on the side of the road all passed out. Can you imagine the, the biggest moment? Championship game, Lawrence Middle School, we're all passed out drunk. Says the assistant to the czar, I'll just go ahead and shoot them all for you. This is ridiculous. We'll shoot them. The czar says, no, you know what? Hold on. There's a lot of pressure in life. Things happen. Sometimes we go for a drink. Sometimes we buck under the pressure. Sometimes we do the wrong thing. It's okay. But this guy right here, shoot him. And the assistant says, what do you mean? What, what's, what's the difference here? Says the czar the following. You look at all these soldiers. They might have fallen. They might have slipped up. But they're all facing the military base. They had a derech. They had a direction. They had a path. They were struggling to make it back. They might have fallen short, but they were on their way back. This guy right here, he's facing the bar. He had no, no desire to make it back. Guys, in life, it's a constant journey. It's a constant struggle. The battle of life is the physical versus the neshama. But I'm here to tell you as somebody who's out there in the world, and it's great to chase physical things. It's great. But at the end of the day, that's not where the lost niggin is. You guys have an unbelievable opportunity. You have amazing rabbi. You're still here in yeshiva. You have all your years ahead of you. You have all your years ahead of you where you guys can work towards finding that lost niggin. But I want to tell you guys one last thing. In trying to be a Mavakesh Hashem, where you really find happiness, in trying to search for that lost niggin, there are good days, there are bad days. I want to make one thing very clear. I'm a rookie in this struggle. There are good days, there are ups or downs. But at the end of the day, if you know in your heart of hearts where you're striving for, you know you're trying to make it back to the base, you fall down, you make mistakes, you have days where you're not learning, you have days where you're off your game. But at the end of the day, if you're a Mavakesh, if you're a seeker, it's a lifelong journey. It's a lifelong process to be a seeker. It's hard to get there. But if that's what you really want in life, you really want to be a Mavakesh, you want to be a seeker, that's ultimately where you find happiness in life. Thank you very much.